Hi, I'm Philip Anthony Albertelli, and this is The Week in Doubt, episode 114. Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible.com. Get a free audiobook download at www.audibletrial.com slash theweekendout. Over 100,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Do I sound stuffier than usual? Um, I've been working in a hot basement all week, and I'm also behind on my allergy shots. But anyway, first up, I'd like to thank you guys for following through and rating the uh, podcast for me on iTunes. If you listened to the last episode, then you probably remember me neurotically uh, complaining about how I lost a quarter of a star on iTunes or something like that. Uh, I went from four and a half stars to four and a quarter. And I asked you guys um, if you would indulge my narcissism or neuroses and leave some positive uh, feedback for me or some uh, some star ratings. And it looks like some of you guys did because I have reclaimed the missing quarter star and the weekend out is back to four and a half out of five stars. So thank you for um, putting up with my pettiness and indulging me. And uh, all right, man. Also, I'd like to apologize for being so late getting out this week's episode. As I mentioned, I was uh, working in a hot basement, uh, which is true. As I've mentioned many times on the podcast, uh, I basically earn my living two ways. Uh, I'm a freelance graphic designer. Uh, That's what I went to school for, graphic design. And I also work for my family's construction or remodeling business. Why is someone with a graphic design degree uh, working construction? Well, that's a very long and very neurotic tale, and uh, <laughs> save that for another day. Uh, I must be a masochist to some extent. But anyway, it's been in the uh, maybe upper 80s into uh, the low 90s and quite humid this week. So I've basically been doing manual labor all day, uh, coming home and uh, passing out and recuperating. And thusly, I've been a uh, very lazy and negligent host, but I've finally got around to uh, picking myself up by the bootstraps and recording episode 114, and here we are. Okay, so I made a promise to someone, and I'm going to fulfill it now. Um, Someone got in touch with me via Twitter and let me know that they had... uh, written an atheist tome of sorts. Uh, The name of the book is Atheism is Winning, and I promised them that I would give the book a shout-out. They actually sent me a copy of the book in a variety of uh, ebook formats. And once again, this uh, ties into me being lazy and negligent, Uh, but I haven't got around to uh, starting to read the book yet. I've scanned a couple of pages, but it seems like a kind of charming book, uh, literally judging a book by its cover and the little bit that I uh, did read. Um, And it's a pro-atheism book, as I mentioned, but it it seems to come from kind of a warm, good-natured place. And it's a good thing I went to my inbox and read the most recent email from the author because I had planned on (laughs) saying their name out loud on this uh, broadcast. And um, luckily I saw the email because they wished to stay anonymous. Um, 
they're kind of fearful or mindful of um, possible negative repercussions they may have to face in their life if it became common knowledge that they were an atheist. And sadly to say, I think it's a valid concern. And I think I may have spoken before on the show about my own experience with uh, people finding out that I'm a non-believer and how early on I think I may have kind of been living in this bubble where I didn't really buy into the idea that people would be persecuted for being an atheist. Maybe it's because most of my closest friends don't really identify as being religious or um, they have kind of some of the same literary interests as myself. We kind of share the same irreverent sense of humor. Uh, We kind of come from a similar philosophical place. Um, And when I've gone to you know, parties over the years. I've gotten into philosophical discussions with strangers, and I would be very blunt about the fact that I think religions are man-made and uh, how I doubt the existence of a, a creator or an afterlife. And I never really caught a lot of flack. Maybe once in a while I would. Um, I think once back in the day I was coming home from... Uh, clubbing with some friends and my one of my best friends was driving I was in the passenger seat and there was a couple of girls in the back seat and I was just kind of benignly telling my friend about this experience I had with my father where uh, I don't know if I've ever told this one on the air before it's kind of a funny story and it stuck with me over the years um I've probably talked on, on the show before about how I'm a huge Doors fan, a huge Jim Morrison fan. And back in the day, uh, my friends and I, who, you know, my closest friends were also my bandmates, we would play at my parents' house and it would get pretty loud and pretty wild sometimes. And sometimes my father would come upstairs and kind of in a huff throw open the door and scold us for being too loud or whatever. Well, on one occasion, he came upstairs and opened the door and he saw that I had a picture of Jim Morrison with uh, a candle or candles burning near it, or a hat that had been burning at this point. Uh, I think they were out, but he could probably tell by the melted wax or whatever that I had been lighting candles, um, which can be a dangerous thing, I understand, is concerned in uh, retrospect. And it's so funny because he asked me in his gruff way if I had been worshipping, quote-unquote, Jimmy Doors. <laughs> which is funny because I'm a Young Turks fan and there's a comedian on the Young Turks uh, named Jimmy Dore. And uh, I, I think about this anecdote whenever uh, I hear his name. But uh, a- anyway, so in my kind of moody, young, tortured artist way, I said, no, I don't worship anything. And I come from kind of like an old school Catholic family. And so I got into this kind of argument about religion with my father And uh, he tried to use the Ten Commandments as an example of why there must be a God. Because the Ten Commandments are so ingenious. How could people just come up with them on their own? They must have came from God or something. 
And uh, even looking back, I still think that's uh, a weak argument. So I went into how I basically think uh, the Ten Commandments are man-made invention. They're like a social contract uh, that people enter into. And you, and you find such social contracts in uh, most, if not all, societies, uh, even the most primitive of societies. There's certain taboos, certain things you're not allowed to do. And it's a way of trying to protect the uh, interest of the individual and the community as a whole. If we went around raping, killing, and plundering uh, without repercussions, um, you know, we'd be like living in a Mad Max movie or something. So, you know, and I, I think that we are moral creatures by nature to some degree. Well, in mixed bag, as I always say, I think we're uh, naturally wired for empathy and compassion. We're also wired for, unfortunately, tribalism and violence. Um, and of course, the um, Judeo-Christian Bible doesn't have a monopoly on moral codes. Of course, we know about things like uh, the Code of Hammurabi, which far predates uh, the Old Testament, um, and what people refer to as the golden rule, that you shouldn't do something to someone else that you wouldn't want done to yourself. This is something you can see in many cultures, uh, including um, as far back as ancient Egypt. You can see that kind of uh, idea. But anyway, so I was recounting this tale to my friend at the uh, end of the night, not meaning to uh, piss anyone off. And all of a sudden, this like, little blonde girl in the back seat pretty much flipped her wig. She just went nuts. I, I didn't know she was a devout Christian, um, but she basically wanted to tear my eyes out because I dared, I dared to say that uh, the Ten Commandments were um, man-made. And I think that type of reaction, you know, it's an example of how I think on some level religious people might know that there's not something quite right with their beliefs or there might be some suspension of disbelief going on somewhere in their head or they may have, you know, their own doubts. Um, but they're fearful of having the existential carpet pulled out from under them so they can get defensive. But it was interesting. So there I was outside... Um, my house at the time in Somerville, uh, late at night, probably drunk, you know, trapped in the same car with some blonde girl who wanted to rip my head off. Um, how did I end up talking about this? Ah, I remember. I was talking about my experiences with uh, being confronted over my lack of belief or uh, atheistic uh, tendencies or whatnot. But I can remember back when I started this podcast, I've been, I can't believe it. I've been doing this for like two years now. It's crazy how time flies. Um, at that time, as much as I admire people like uh, Richard Dawkins, uh, I would sometimes hear new atheist um, thinkers or speakers talk about being persecuted for being an atheist. And I used to be like, oh man, get out the world's tiniest violin i'm thinking to myself who cares if someone's an atheist um i've never had to deal with uh any type of prejudice for my lack of belief you know um but since then i've realized that it is a real issue uh even friends of mine fairly close friends not part of my closest inner circle but friends i've known for years and i go and hang out with at parties and stuff 
Well, to put things into context, I don't think I openly started to refer to myself as an atheist at times until after I started the show. And that's even though I've doubted things like the existence of a crater god or an afterlife for a very long time. Probably first started started having doubts about those things um, when I was probably in late elementary school or middle school. And those doubts were really kind of sealed by the time I was in my late teens. Um, despite that, I think I had always just considered myself merely agnostic because, you know, I had that reasonable caveat that um, none of us can be 100% certain that there's not a God. Uh, and I thought that little bit of uncertainty technically made me an agnostic. Um, but as I've said many, many times on this show, even the most diehard atheist, even someone like Richard Dawkins, um, isn't going to presume to know with 100% certainty whether they're is or isn't a god. It's just that we think based on the evidence, based on the man-made nature of religion, based on the lack of evidence for the existence of a creator in general, never mind a specific creator, that it seems logical to doubt um, the existence of a deity. Um, but it's not that we say we know with 100% certainty. I notice, and so here are, the, here are these friends I've known for years and years, and when I, in passing, would start to refer to myself as an atheist, it would really elicit this kind of visceral reaction. I had one person tell me that atheists are so stupid, I think I've talked on this about this on the show before, because how can there not be a god? Um, oh, maybe there is a creator, maybe there isn't show me the evidence. I know for damn well sure if there is a creator, it's most likely not one and the same with anything we find in uh, humanity's man-made holy books. And it kind of reminds me how before Darwin, it probably would have seemed logical to assume that some creator must have designed everything. Because how can you have all these animals, all these plants, and all these different shapes and sizes, uh, all these different vibrant colors? Um, some animals seem perfectly designed to reach high up fruit because they have high, long necks. Uh, others, like moles, you know, are basically blind or have vestigial eyes because they don't need them because they live in the ground. You know, all this stuff, it probably would have seemed natural to assume that there must have been a designer. Where else would everything come from? Even though throughout the ages, here and there, people, you know, philosophers had played with ideas, something akin to evolution. But it's not really till Darwin that we really have that light bulb moment. And then we have this one little idea of natural selection, uh, and we see how complex forms and systems can arise by means of simple processes given enough time. And I think there may even be, end up being some kind of aha moment like that with the question of God. Right now, people have trouble wrapping their head around the idea of something coming from nothing, so to speak. 
And a lot of you guys out there are probably familiar with Lawrence Krauss and his idea of a universe from nothing. Um, and, and it is really hard to wrap one's head around. But of course, um, as Richard Dawkins and others talk about, simply saying that God did it, you know, that God of the gaps argument, uh, we don't know how something's done, so we say God did it. It's not really a scientific answer. It's not really a thoughtful answer. And it's not really backed up by evidence. And I'm not saying this because this is what I want to be true. Because I can remember when I was young and nothing frightened or disturbed me more than the idea that there might not be a god or an afterlife or some grand designer that imbues everything with meaning. Um, But I I think it could be the case um, that eventually there might be some kind of aha or light bulb moment just like the way that the idea of Darwinian evolution changed the way we look at our origins that there might be some grand insight something simple yet profound that didn't occur to us before that allows us to see how something really could come from nothing or something that kind of knocks God out of the equation. And I'm not saying that's what I want to be because I'm the atheistic Grinch and, you know, I want to try to grasp at whatever straws possible to get rid of God. No, it's on the contrary. Um, the reason I'm a non-believer is because I have almost this religious devotion to uh, the search for the truth. And it, it's just, that has occurred to me over the years that, um, you know, here we are trying to figure out how something could come from nothing. And both, I think, scientists and believers get caught in the snare of infinite regress. Um, you know, religious people say God did it, but where did God come from? They'll say God always was. You know, basically, we'll say, how do you know that? Um, and they'll say the Bible. Oh, your flawed, contradictory, man-made text. That's how you know God always was. Um and for those of us who have more of a scientific worldview, you know, we could go back to the Big Bang and then uh, things get problematic. Um, but I think, like I said, there may be some aha moment that kind of dispels the problem of infinite regress and sheds light on the problem of how could something come from nothing. And already, as I alluded to, Lawrence Krauss, Stephen Hawking, there's already people who have... Um, some ideas about how something can come from nothing. But anyway, to get back on topic, so I've learned from firsthand experience that people can have a really visceral reaction to uh, the word atheist. And in a weird way, I think a lot of it has to do with semantics. Like if you were sitting at a table having a conversation over a few drinks with some uh, strangers late at night at a party and you're all talking about how basically, yeah, religion seems to be man-made, you know, there's uh, these inconsistencies and uh, things that don't really make sense in the Bible. Um, Or I get the feeling when you die, it's probably like turn off the lights. You know, we've probably all been in or heard conversations like that. And uh, yet, it seems like that's all right as long as you don't call yourself an atheist. <laughs> you know, if you're just keeping it real, 
uh, giving your honest opinion about religion or whatever, especially in kind of a uh, relaxed setting where you're just kicking back, having a philosophical discussion, you know, it's all right. But if you come out and say, I'm an atheist, you know, there's some kind of gut reaction people have to that word. It reminds me of uh, Daniel Dennett, who, um, you know, he's a prominent atheist philosopher, a close friend of Richard Dawkins. And he did this funny bit before where it was based on the Jeff Foxworthy bit about if you do such and such, you may be a redneck. But with uh, Dennett, it was like, you know, if you do such such and such, you may be an atheist or you may already be an atheist. And he was just kind of listing the different ways that... Uh, someone might be an atheist without knowing it. Like I said, you know, people might think that religion is man-made or something like that. Or they might, even though they go to church on Sundays, they might think that the uh, a lot of the religion that they were brought up with uh, should be taken figuratively as opposed to, to literally. And, um, and I think it's true. There's a lot of people probably closer to being atheists and they know let's say even uh if i refer back to that anecdote about the girl in the back of the car you might argue that she was closer to being an atheist uh than she was aware of because she became so disturbed by my challenging the uh claims of her religion that she became very emotional so that kind of indicates that on some level she might have her own doubts and that's why you know, she reacted so violently or whatever. Um, so it is weird. So in a sense, I think you can be an atheist and, and a lot of people won't have a problem with it as long as you don't say you're an atheist. I think because people look at atheism as this kind of anti-religion. And, um, and if you belong to that anti-religion, then you're a wicked individual. You know, you're either... Um, misguided, godless, evil, or whatever, you know. Um, but if you, like I said, if you break it down for people, if you explain why you doubt uh, literal belief, if you explain why you have doubts about whether or not there's an afterlife or a creator, a lot of people would probably um, find your reasons for doubting to be very rational, rational and could probably even relate to those reasons. Um but once you call yourself an atheist, it, it kind of slams a door shut and awakens this emotional uh, reaction in people. Um, and then again, that whole thing I've talked about on the show before about Richard Dawkins and Daniel Dennett proposing that atheists should maybe call themselves brights because, you know, that has kind of a happier, more positive ring to it. And... Uh, Christopher Hitchens used to refer to it as cringe-inducing, I believe, and, and I share that uh, response. So often I'll just refer to myself as a non-believer. Um, but yeah, I, I have noticed, unfortunately, if you call yourself an atheist, uh, what, what other word is it? People have a kind of prejudice reaction to it. And I think there was, re uh, there was recently uh, some kind of poll that was being talked about in the news Um and they found, like, the two groups that people would least like, you know, their children or whatever, to bring home as their significant other for, uh, you know, Thanksgiving dinner or something like that. It was atheists, and on the other end of the spectrum, uh, I believe it was born-again Christians. 
And I think that shows that maybe people are afraid of extremes, you know, and, and there's also maybe some stereotypes involved. People think that if you bring an atheist home, um, that you're bringing some kind of godless monster into the house, uh, you know, that um, you can't even relate to, like a human being or something. And if people think you're going to bring a born-again Christian to the house, they think that the person's going to uh, have a Bible glued to their hand and be thumping you over the head with it all day or whatever. Um, But, yeah, this is kind of funny. The two groups that people least wanted you know, their kids or whatever to bring home for like Thanksgiving dinner. It was athe- atheists on one end of the spectrum and uh, born-again Christians on the other. And I have to be completely honest. I know when I started this podcast, um, you know, I was proud that I had created something and I was excited about what I was doing. So not only did I create a Weekend Out Facebook page, but I would at the same time post links to the most recent episode on my regular Facebook page, too. It's because I was proud of the podcast. I wanted to share it with other people. And um, it was interesting. There were a handful of people, uh, you know, some of them old high school friends or acquaintances. Uh, Some people I might have already assumed might have atheistic tendencies, and some that I probably wouldn't have guessed it at all were supportive and let me know that they shared a similar worldview. Um, But I noticed at the same time, like on my regular Facebook page, after I started posting links to the uh, podcast, a lot of people stopped uh, posting to my timeline. I wonder if some people have blocked my post because they're embarrassed that uh, some of their friends or family might see these uh, posts having to do with atheism. Um, and I've, I've also experienced this kind of fear or anxiety about what if a freelance client, um, sees some of the links or, or, uh, finds out I'm, uh, basically an atheist or, you know, strong agnostic or whatever, however you want to say it. I strongly doubt the existence of a creator in an afterlife, but if they see, you know, the, the, uh, logo for the show, um, has a black cross with a white question mark in it. And the the point is that you should question religion. You should look for the truth. And right in the tagline, it says, you know, a podcast for atheists, agnostics, and whoever. But obviously, obviously some people are going to see the black cross with the question mark. They're going to see the word atheist. And uh, they're going to want to brand me or pigeonhole me. Um, That's not dirty, pigeonhole. (laughs) And, you know, I have wondered what if, like, I decide I want to get a full-time design job and give up this uh, grueling construction stuff. Uh, What if a um, potential employer, as they want to do, as I understand it, you know, looks me up online or whatever and and sees that uh, I'm an atheist podcaster. Um, And so I do feel some concern about that. But at the end of the day, I'm like, hey, this is who I am, and what the hell kind of topsy-turvy world is it if I'm excoriated or persecuted because I have a desire to know the truth, empirical truth? Um, What kind of upside-down world is that if the right thing is to embrace myth and superstition and to try to placate yourself with these supernatural consolations that may very well not be real. And the thing that's demonized is searching for the truth. 
or wanting to know the actual truth. I mean, so if you're going to persecute me for that, I, I almost want to wear it as a badge of honor, you know? And I feel like in my life, you know, I've conceded too much already. I'm not going to concede myself. I'm not going to be ashamed of wanting to know the truth. And, uh, well, that's that. <laughs> but I, I understand that. I have less to lose, too. Like, I know that, um, like, I don't have any kids. Uh, so I, I can understand, if, you know, if, if someone has a family that they're responsible for financially, etc. cetera, um, I can understand how they might be afraid of uh, losing their job or whatever. Or, so they they choose to want to stay anonymous. But really it's funny though, because I think it does come down to semantics and it comes down to that word. Um, it's kind of funny how, you know, Richard Dawkins uses that red scarlet A kind of reminiscent of the scarlet A in the scarlet letter. Because um, I think people really do brand you when you say you're an atheist, even though if they thought about it logically, they might have some of the, the same doubts that you do. Uh, let's see, before I move on to news stories, um, I wanted to say when I looked at the iTunes ratings and discovered that, yeah, yeah, the star rating is back up, so um, some of you guys must have been coming through for me. I failed to look to see if anyone wrote any new reviews uh, as opposed to just you know clicking on the star rating. And uh, if I overlook someone, I apologize. Yeah, if any of you guys who are following the show on Twitter and I haven't given you a shout-out yet, or you left me a review on iTunes and I haven't given you a shout-out yet, don't be afraid to let me know because I love giving you guys shout-outs. All right. So I guess now I'll... I'll oh, Actually, I don't think I... Speaking of shout-outs, I didn't do the Twitter shout-outs this week. I might skip it for now since we're already 30-something minutes into the uh, podcast, and I'll try to catch up with that next episode. Oh, I was going to do a correction of sorts, too. Um, I, think, you know, I often like to talk about that uh, Christopher Hitchens um, speech, I guess, for lack of a better word, one of my favorite things by him. Um, which I like to poetically refer to it as heaven watches with folded arms. It's the talk where he discusses how feel like Christianity's only been around for a couple of thousand years. When you look at how old, um, never mind, you know, the, the vast age of the earth and the universe, the earth, of course, 4.5 billion years, uh, roughly. Um, but the human species, um, he talks about how, how long the human species has been around, in relation to how long, say, Christianity has been around and um, how for most of the time that man has existed, we probably lived very short lives, um, dying from what today would be minor things like a tooth infection, um, not to mention all the other life forms feeding on one another, all the fear, suffering, uh, life feeding on life, etc., and, and it's not till 2,000 years ago that God decides, supposedly, if you believe in the Christian tale, that, that God decides to do something about it or whatever. Um, but in that talk, Christopher Hitchens, when discussing the age of Homo sapiens, of, of the human species, he'll give a number of different ballpark figures ranging from, I think, like 80 to 100, uh, or probably not less than 100,000 years, all the way up to a quarter of a million years. Um, and I didn't want to 
confuse anyone where maybe I got the, the ballpark figures wrong or something. The Doing research online, the general consensus seems to be at least anatomically modern humans arose about 200,000 years ago in uh, Africa. I think there's an Ethiopian uh, skull, a human skull found in Ethiopia uh, around, is it the Oro River, I think, uh, that dates like 195,000 years ago or something like that. Actually, not Oro, Omo. O-M-O, I believe. <clears throat> the homo from homo. Homo sapiens. I'm not making an... <laughs> I'm not making an anti-gay joke. You guys know how vigorously um, I defend uh, gay rights on this show. I just could not resist saying the homo from homo. But anyway, um, before I go on to read any news stories, just in general, there were some uh, disturbing court decisions recently um, the Supreme Court got rid of the uh, 50-foot buffer zone um, that was used to keep pro-life protesters from harassing people entering abortion clinics. Um, and also, there was a victory for um, conservative Christians in the sense that uh, you've probably heard about that case with uh, Hobby Lobby. Hobby Lobby, that's kind of a strange name. Hobby Lobby is this, uh, I think it's a chain store of uh, kind of craft and art outlets or whatever, um, craft supplies, etc. And it's run by a conservative Christian. And they didn't think it was right that they had to provide insurance to their uh, female employees that included um, coverage of certain kinds of contraception which they uh, regarded as abortifacients or something like that. Um, so the 50-foot buffer zone outside of abortion clinic, uh, clinics was, um, was found to be unconstitutional. And also there, there was a victory for Hobby Lobby, where now um, it was decided that, that legally they shouldn't have to cover certain types of contraception that they have some kind of ideological or philosophical problem with. Um, and a lot of people have brought up the point that that could be a really kind of dangerous, slip, slippery slope. Because what about Scientologists and uh, their opposition to mental health care um, and mental health drugs? What about you know, Christian scientists, uh, not actual scientists who happen to be Christian, but Christian scientists, those people that think um, you should heal your children with uh, prayer instead of medicine. There's a lot of different religions that have uh, prohibitions against what most of us would regard as uh, positive and beneficial things that fall into the realm of healthcare, such as uh, psychiatry and um in the case of christian scientists uh medicine in general um so what if a member of one of those quote-unquote faiths decides that um they don't want their to have to provide their employees with uh coverage of health care or um psychiatric care or whatever whether it be talk therapy or um antidepressants or whatever it is of course a lot of that could probably be 
avoid it if we had, um, I don't want to get too political, you know, but if we did have some kind of, you know, like an affordable, effective insurance system that didn't rely on the employer as the middleman. Um, but I don't want to get into some weird uh, debate about single-payer health care or whatever when um, I'd probably find myself quickly getting out of my depth. I'm more comfortable discussing philosophical and uh, religious topics. Uh, so, you know, it's fascinating back on the subject of abortion, uh, the cherry subject of abortion, because uh, we were just talking about the buffer zone uh, outside of abortion clinics. Well, Cenk Uger from the Young Turks made some awesome points about uh, Christianity and, and abortion. Um, he framed it in a way that I never quite looked at it before, that uh, you know, th- there's a lot of references in the Old Testament that have to do with how someone should be compensated for the value of a life, you know, if someone's injured or someone's killed. Um, how the Bible draws a distinction between a woman pregnant with child and an actual child outside of the womb. And less recompense is demanded of a pregnant woman, supposedly, who is injured than, you know, if a child is killed outside the womb, etc. And in fact, I think... Uh, yeah, Jenk Uger was talking about how, I don't know if it's a month, but there's a certain period of time that has to pass when a child is outside the womb before it's considered, before it's considered worth a compensatory amount of a full human being. Um, and it might have been a month or something like that, which makes sense in a way, because if you think about that time, if, if we're dealing with people in between two to 4,000 years ago or whatever, um, there was probably a very high rate of uh, infant mortality, and people probably would wait to see, you know, how hardy the child was. Is the child going to even be around with us very long before you decide uh, that it's time to say, all right, you know, this is a healthy child, it seems like... um, all things considered, they stand a good chance of uh, living to adulthood. Now you can have the uh, the value of a full human being or whatever. Um, and, and Cenk was actually kind of uh, referencing this specific uh, chapter and verse, I think. And um, But he made some good points about how even the Bible doesn't really seem to be that pro-life when it comes to the unborn, or it doesn't place the same value on the unborn that it does the born, for lack of a, a, um, a better term. And there was one, uh, let me check my notes, and there was one passage he mentioned in particular, I'm not going to read it because it's so long, you guys know that usually I love reading Bible verses on the show, and it gives me an excuse to uh, play around with my... Um, world music loops or whatever um but this one's just too long it starts with numbers 511 if you want to look it up yourself and it might even go to like numbers 530 or 5 there's a lot of uh verses but it it basically it, it kind of reminds me of uh Leviticus in a way where you know there's the whole list of rules and regulations um 
for how one should conduct oneself in certain situations or whatever. But in this case, it deals with a man who suspects his wife of adultery and uh, the woman ends up being pregnant and the man wants to know whose baby uh, the child belongs to. So it's suggested that the man bring his wife to the priest, basically, and they come up with this strange concoction and the woman drinks it. And if it causes her to miscarry, then it's considered that that baby was the product of adultery. But if the baby lives, then it's assumed that it's the child of the rightful husband. Um, So Jake was saying that basically, you know, holy crap, the Bible, at least in this case, seems to actually promote abortion or at least doesn't seem to have a big problem with the idea of um, an illegitimate child being uh, intentionally miscarried or whatever. So it is pretty interesting, this whole kind of warm and fuzzy idea of the right to life this whole kind of pro-life ideology embraced by uh, modern Christians, it isn't even something that you really find in the Old Testament or that um, they spend a lot of time discussing in the Old Testament. If anything, it seems to be the case that a child not yet born or even a child born who hasn't made it to a specific amount of time yet is, is considered of lesser compensatory value than a fully formed human uh, or, um, you know, an older child or an adult human or whatnot. Um, And I'm not saying that that's my belief, that I I think that a child doesn't have value in the womb or whatever. Absolutely not. I I kind of, uh, I'm kind of simpatico with uh, Christopher Hitchens' line of thinking on this. Christopher Hitchens was, of course, a... uh, a very proud non-believer, outspoken non-believer. And, but he would also openly talk about how he believed that unborn life has inherent value and we, we should take that value seriously. Um, and I think so too. I, I, but I think the point where it becomes complicated is that it puts two rights at loggerheads, the rights of the unborn, the right to life of the unborn, and the right of a woman to decide what she does with her own body, one of the most intimate decisions someone can make. And so I think that's where compromise comes in. You have to try to balance those factors. And, uh, and also, I should say, right off the bat, you know, there's this almost caricature of people who have abortions or who are pro-choice that you find uh, coming from the right you know, this caricature that their, uh, that abortions are like their idea of fun. It's what they do on the weekends. I imagine abort. I'm not a woman. And obviously you can tell by the baritone voice, but, uh, and my large Adam's apple, if you were here. Um, but I imagine it's gotta be one of the hardest decisions in the world to make. Um, and of course, sometimes, you know, the reason for an abortion is because maybe, the girl's underage and afraid of the parents finding out. Um, It could be that the person just feels they're not ready. Uh, And of course, there's also very valid medical considerations sometimes. There's times when 
Uh, a pregnancy might be considered life-threatening to the mother. There's situations where a fetus can be considered uh, unviable, that if it, it maybe it has horrendous deformities, and if it is born, it most likely will not live long outside the womb. And if it doesn't, what kind of life would it be? You know, someone with a um, born with most of their brain missing or the brain outside the head or, uh, like I said, monstrous deformities. Um, and yeah, I mean, just as a decent human being, I think there's kind of like a sliding scale. I think the longer you wait, the more morally troublesome the idea of abortion becomes. Um, I used to talk about it, I remember even as a kid, probably like a, you know, a teenager, a young teenager, and I saw a broken egg on the street once. And um, for some reason, I remember it spurred me to talk philosophically with a friend about how, you know, if you saw a broken egg on the road, you probably wouldn't be too disturbed by it. But if you saw a dead bird on the road, you know, that would probably be more likely to elicit a kind of uh, gut reaction from you or um, to make you sad or disturbed or, or to feel empathy or compassion for the dead animal. And I think it's kind of similar, you know, with humans, like with human gestation. The idea of destroying a fertilized egg basically a cell, uh, that really doesn't bother me in the least. Does it have the potential for life? Sure. But you know, my sperm has the potential for life if mixed with an egg. Was that too disturbing or too uh, personal? But uh, anyway, um, you know what I mean? So the idea of an egg being destroyed and the idea of an eight-month-old fetus being destroyed essentially um, an infant that's just still in the womb, um, a huge difference there. And I think huge, hugely different moral implications in, in both on both sides of that spectrum. Um, so it's not like I have some cavalier attitude towards abortion, but I do believe in the right of a woman to choose and... I think most women are going to make the, sm the smart and uh, responsible decision. And, it's, and if they do decide to have an abortion, it's probably going to be for a good reason. And it's probably going to be far from the happiest day of their life. And, and as a guy, I feel self-conscious talking about it because I'll never know what a woman uh, has to go through in a situation like that. How did I get onto the subject of abortion? Uh, anyway, oh yeah, uh, Hobby Lobby. But anyway, I'll um, read some news stories. Let's see, oh, here's a good one. This is from the HuffPost Religion. Creationism banned from UK schools. That's certainly good. The United Kingdom government has banned the teaching of creationism as a scientific theory in free schools and academies, which are the equivalent of a public school in the United States. The move was done in the interest of having a broad and balanced curriculum, according to UPI. The remarkable decision was part of a document published on June 9th that laid out new clauses for church academies and stated that creationism is not widely accepted as a scientific theory. And here's um, what the clauses said. 
Creationism is rejected by most mainstream churches and religious traditions, including the major providers of state-funded schools such as the Anglican Catholic churches, as well as the scientific community. It does not, and I believe they weren't saying an Anglican Catholic church, I think they were saying Anglican and Catholic, I think, but anyway, churches as well as the scientific community. It does not accord with the scientific consensus or the very large body of established scientific evidence, nor does it accurately and consistently employ the scientific method, and as such, it should not be presented to pupils at the academy as a scientific theory. Um, oh, finally, some sanity, a breath of fresh air. Um, but it's kind of funny. This reminds me of what I was talking about last week where, uh, I've known a a number of, or spoken with a number of, uh, people from the UK who are kind of surprised or taken back by the level of religiosity here in the States or the way, even though it's not supposed to, it kind of becomes intermingled with, uh, politics. But that's a good story. Oh, this is a disturbing one. Okay, HuffPost religion again. And this comes via the AP. I was just about to uh, rag on the HuffPost for getting all their stories from the AP, but that would be quite hypocritical since I'm getting all my stories from the HuffPost and thusly the AP. But this one is uh, titled, I shouldn't be laughing, Pakistani girl and her husband killed by her family after marrying without consent. Islamabad, AP. A 17-year-old girl and her husband were killed by her family for marrying without its consent, and another young woman was burned alive by a man for for refusing his proposal in Pakistan's eastern Punjab province, police said Sunday. Muafia Bibi and her husband, Sayyad or Sajad, Ahmed, sorry if I butchered that, 30, were killed in Satra village Friday night, allegedly by her parents, two uncles, and her grandfather, said Asghar Asghar Ali, the area police chief. He said the couple was hacked to death with a butcher's knife and that all five suspects have been apprehended. Ali said the couple married in June 19th on June 19th, and that the family had lured them back home by saying it accepted the marriage. He said it was Ahmed's third marriage, with the first ending in divorce and his second wife leaving him after he married Bibi. Elsewhere in Punjab, a man burned alive a young girl he wanted to marry after her family refused his proposal. Fayaz Aslam, 26, Dao Sidra Shukat, in gasoline before setting the 20-year-old alight in the field, said Akhtar Saeed, a direct... uh, a district police official. I'll, I'll skip down a bit. Marrying for love is a taboo among conservative Muslims in Pakistan, where hundreds of people are killed each year by their own relatives over alleged sexual indiscretions, which are believed to bring shame upon the family. The victims are usually women, but in some cases, couples are killed. And I almost don't need to comment on uh, this one. Obviously, anyone listening knows what's lo- what's wrong with this. Hacking a person to death, never mind a, a family member, um, because they wanted the freedom to marry who they love, it's sick. It's barbaric. And as the story makes mention of, um, these kind of honor killings are not all that uncommon, unfortunately. Far too common. And before I fly off the handle and start bashing Islam, I should say that I know in some cases... Um, the distinction between tribal culture 
and Islamic culture can get kind of confused. Um, Because sometimes these kind of barbaric traditions supposedly have tribal roots that even predate Islam. So um, I'm not trying to say this is a practice that it's necessarily accepted by the vast majority of Muslims. Um, But if this really is related to religious beliefs, the idea of butchering another human being, um, especially when their only crime was being in love, and especially when they're your relative, perhaps your child, because of your religious beliefs, you might want to ask yourself, what kind of religion is that? What kind of God would that be who wanted me to do that? So that's ugly stuff. But I did have a couple more stories, but I've been going at this for over an hour now, so I'm probably going to call it quits. As always, you can like the show on Facebook. Please do. You can follow the show on Twitter. You can visit the Week in Doubt YouTube channel. You can go to Podbean and do a search for the Week in Doubt and check out the archives and the recent episodes. And if you're there and you feel generous, you can help donate to the show's upkeep by using the PayPal widget. Then you can also support the show through uh, Patreon, patreon.com slash theweekendoubt, I think. Um, And before I forget, you can also listen to the show on Stitcher. All right, thank you, and until next time.